I, I felt like God told me th- about three months ago, he said, I want you to love men unconditionally so that they can accept unconditional love for me. Hello and welcome to the One Heart Podcast, sponsored by One Heart, One Light. One Heart, One Light is an authentic, diverse community of men and women who have a background with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We choose to love and be loved unapologetically. At One Heart, One Light, we teach unique tools to apply Christ's atonement, and we are a bridge to becoming one with self, others, and God. As we like to say, One Heart, One Light exists to empower individuals to become one by reminding them of their wholeness. Come and be one with us. Today our guest is Jeremy Morris. Jeremy is a husband, a father, and a son. He's a co-founder of Wild Courage and the host of the Wild Courage podcast. This is part two of the interview as we continue to talk about experiencing hope through stories of redemption. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Man, Matt, it's so good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm super excited. And I just I just want to pick up, not exactly where we left off, but in your story, you talked about being in jail. You talked about your your fifth DUI and and finding God. And what I want to cover in this second part is how did you go about putting your life back together? You said your wife moved away. She bought a house. She she <laughs> was not willing to play your game anymore. And I'm just curious, how did how did that go? Where did you see God show up for you? And and I'm just curious what uh what your fo- first phone call to her was hey honey i'm i'm all better or how, how did that go well we were living in the same town um right after i got back from wyoming because we were living in arizona um i got a job in the oil field so we were living in an apartment in a covered arena so there's this huge wow. covered arena Um, and underneath the front part of it was a really nice, big, like probably 2000 square foot apartment. Um, and then you'd go up the stairs and then there's the covered arena. Well, there was an office up there that was just big enough for my cot. So I would, I had my cot in there and then about a foot on the side to walk in there. And I had um, some clothes and stuff in there. So for a while, when I got back from my from being in jail in Wyoming. Um, she's like, you're not living in the house. Um, I don't trust you, obviously. Um, even though I tried to share with her this God encounter that I had in jail, I'm like, I'm free. I felt alcoholism leave me. Like people say alcoholism is a disease, right? Sure. What is leprosy? Sure. <laughs> D- disease, right? Like, sure. Can God heal diseases? Absolutely. So if if people want to classify alcoholism as a disease, which is fine with me, I'm saying, I'm telling my wife, I've been healed from this. It's, it it left me, it's gone. And she's like, sure it is. Right. Cause I'd quit, you know, so many many times times before. Yeah. And so I lived in the office with my cot. I would fly to work for 30 days and then I'd come home for um 15 days off I remember in the winter my first year of doing this I'd fly home to Phoenix and then it's a two-hour drive up to where we lived wow and I would go to in my little room and it was cold because where we lived in Arizona was at a mile high right and I would go in my little cot and there was a wall heater and I would turn it on and I would sit there freezing until that little room warmed up thinking, this is what my life's become. Yeah. My family's cuddled away in there. And it's now two in the morning because that's a long flight, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast and then the drive. And I would sit on my bed and cry like this is where my life has ended up. Right. And... um. I, I was, uh, because of the legal situation I was in, I was required to do outpatient rehab and, um, I had to go to AA meetings and get my little thing signed that I was attending. 
So I was doing that in the 15 days that I was home. And then the outpatient, I had to do that because I was gone for so long. I would, I had to get a special, uh, okay from the judge that I would just do a whole bunch of it when I was home. Wow. So I was working like a hundred, 120 hours a week in the oil field for, uh, four weeks straight. Then I'd come home and I was just saturating myself in getting help. I had to legally. Right. So God was like putting all these people in my place. And, um, I was going to this really wonderful AA meeting and then I was going to the outpatient, outpatient therapy, group therapy. And it was for, uh, mostly it was full of kids who were either going to go to prison or they had to do go to this program to stay out of jail. So it was me and a bunch of young kids and I'm a middle-aged man. And I remember one day sitting there, probably my third time, um, thinking these people, I I don't belong here. Um, especially in AA, I was like, these guys are, man, what a bunch of losers. (laughs) And I don't belong here. These are not my people. Meanwhile, these guys have like 30, 40 years sobriety. I'm on my fifth DUI, right? And I'm like, what a hypocrite. (laughs) I just remember thinking like, I do belong here. These are my people. It was just a very healing time. But more specifically, I had this lady named Gwen who was from Chicago. She led our outpatient um, group. And she was an ex-heroin addict. This beautiful, large black lady. And for the first time in my life, she did not coddle me and I would share how my wife, you know, I was living in the closet or in the office outside and how she, she wouldn't even go knowing I was coming home. I couldn't even get my wife to go turn the heater on for me. Wow. Like she, she was numb to me. She did not, she had nothing for me. Right. And Gwen was the first person that really walked me through like, yeah, You've put yourself in these shoes. She was the first one that started teaching me to have self-accountability and not be a victim. There's a slippery slope between being a victim, which in some sense, I am a victim of sexual abuse, right? Sure. Sure. And mental and physical abuse or emotional abuse, but also owning what I've done in the wake of all that. Sure. And what are you going to do with it? Right. What are you going to do with the card? Too many people. Dealt? Yeah. Too many people stay in victimhood and that just enable. And then they have a bunch of people around that know their story. So they enable them. Right. And Gwen was the first person. Cause I'm just freshly out with my story at this point too. Right. Of, um, and she's like, Oh no, you, you put yourself here. You, you need to own it. And I remember something shifting with her, especially I'm like, I have to be here for like, 18 weeks. What if I just embrace this? Right. And something shifted in me. And I was like, well, I've been asking God to put the right people in my life to help me. And here she is. (laughs) And it was hard because she was very honest with me. That's when it it hurt. Yeah. So not long after I'd moved out, um, my wife found a house on a property with a barn and an arena and bought it and moved out. And I'm processing this with Gwen and group and all these, you know, early 20 year olds are rolling their eyes at me sitting there crying in front of all these (laughs) kids about my wife's leaving me. She's moving out in her own house and Gwen, I'll never forget Gwen saying, yep. And you're going to go over there and you're going to, paint the house. You're going to redo the flooring. You're going to help her move. My wife's whole family was coming to help her kind of give the house a once over. And Gwen's like, you're going to be right in the middle of it helping and you're going to pay for everything too. (laughs) And I'm like, do you know how scary this is to go face my mother and father-in-law, my wife's sister, her family, and my, her, my wife's brother and her family, they were all coming to help her move and prepare and Gwen's like, yep, you're going to go and you're going to be right in the middle of it. I'm like, she hates me. She, I don't care. I was so scared to face her family. They all know what I've done. They all know what I've put her through. 
and they all embraced me and were like her brother, Mike, who's one of my best friends now was like, dude, you're the bravest guy. I know. <laughs> I would say so. I cannot believe you're, mm-hmm. uh, we're riding in the truck, making the trip. And I'm like, I'm scared to death. I, I'm helping my wife leave me. Right. I'm saying goodbye to my son. Even before when I was living in the office, I knew they were down five steps and they were right there. Right. They were 40 feet from me. There was something safe about that. But the finality of her moving out was a changed everything. Sure. The, the, the totality of the mess I had made set in the first night that I moved back into the apartment and I was by myself again. And they weren't 40 feet away anymore, right? They'd moved on. Miles away. And again, I just look back and I'm like, Grace, God just like took care of my heart. It was hard. Um, again, I was still convincing my wife, like, I'm fixed. I'm fixed. I'm sober. I'm, I've been sober for four months now. And she's like, I would go to get my son. At first, he couldn't spend the night with me. And Gwen was like helping me navigate all this saying, damn straight he can't spend the night with you (laughs) you're not you know what i mean like she has every right to not trust you right and you feel like the little boy who cried wolf right but i'm like i know inside of me there's been a change she would go through every inch of my truck looking for a bottle and the hit on my pride that that was of like I can't believe you don't believe me. And she's like, I don't care. Especially when it had been months, right? At this point, you're like, I haven't had a drink in months. And I have no desire to. Right. She's like, so months turned into a year. She's still checking the truck. Right. She still doesn't believe me. I'm making good money. I got my nose clean. We're going to the same little church. There's like 50 people in this church. I would sit on one side. <laughs> she would sit on the other. Everyone in that church knew who the jerk was. <laughs> so God was just taking me on this incredible humility ride. Sure. Like I was showing up to places that scared me to death, her family, church. Yeah. And owning it. And like, because God put these people in my life. Hey, hey, I would go there sometimes. And I would just cry because my heart was so broken. I lost my family and it was my fault. Yeah. And I couldn't reconcile compassion for my story versus the mess I'd made. So the self-hatred was freaking deep. Sure. I mean, I, I told you, I think in the last part of my story, after I'd gotten sober, it was the first time I was suicidal. Right. I would read my Bible in the morning and have a gun in my mouth every night. Like that's the contrast of the wrestling match of knowing that there's a change that's happened in me, but in the wake of dealing with things with a clear mind and heart, it was too painful. Yeah. The price, uh, uh, it was too scary. Um, so I just kept grinding. No end in sight. I saw my wife flourishing. She put herself through school, had three jobs. She would not let me pay for anything. Like she was done, dude. Totally independent. Yeah. She would let me pay for half of our son's preschool. And I was making, dude, I was in the oil field working a hundred hours a week. I was, I was making a lot of money. She did not care. She, She would tell me, I hope you go get, go find a girlfriend. Wow. That was the most painful thing to me. Look at porn. Go get a girlfriend. Please go find someone else. That's what hurt me the most. Sure. Because there's nothing I could do to hurt her. There's nothing I could do to win her heart. There was nothing I could do to hurt her. I literally could have gotten remarried. She would not have cared. And not even a little bit. So 
I, again, I, I was just surrounded by the right people at the time. I had a friend named Ben Balo who was like four years sober ahead of me. We used to party together. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with him. I had a friend, David Simmons, who was like the associate pastor of my church, um, who I spent a lot of time with. And, and a lot these guys didn't know what to say, but they just showed up for me. Sure. You know, we don't know what we know now. I don't know what I know now, but looking back, um, it was everything. I went from having a ton of friends, life of the party, the guy putting on these big parties and ropings and to being in complete isolation, working my guts out with people that I had nothing in common with coming home to 27 dead mice in the mouse traps because I've been gone for a month and my house smelling like dead mouse mice, cleaning that up, the reentry of excited to see my son at a limited basis and my wife stoic, nothing changed. Sure. So two years go by. Dude, I'm grinding. I'm still doing AA. I'm still doing outpatient. I'm still. I look back and I'm like, I don't even know how I got through that. Right. Like, can I come get late? I think after a couple of years, maybe she would let me spend the night. I could spend the night, but she would do the thorough look through the truck and like there was parameters. She would call like at bedtime and she could tell if I'd been drinking, you know, in two seconds. Right. So there was all these uh, boundaries that she had set with him being alone with me. Um, so I, I'll, I think after the third year, she invited me over for dinner on Christmas. Wow. And that was the first time I had hope after three years. I also was getting healthier and starting to look at what does my life life look like without her? Because dude, three years is a long time. Right. So I would come up to Idaho to see my family and bring my son. And I started looking around at real estate and, um, one time she flew up, I picked up my son and drove up here for Thanksgiving because we always spend Thanksgiving at my sister's house. And she's like, I think I'm going to fly up for Thanksgiving because I want to, I don't want to be without Layton. And so I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, so she flew up and I thought that was brave of her, but there was still no inclination of anything with me. Like um, she hung out with my family and, I was like, okay. And then we all went back to our houses and I went back to work. And that Christmas was the one where she's like, I'm making a bunch of food. Um, you might as well come over. So we started kind of hanging out more at the exchanges. It wasn't like meet at a mutual pace, trade kid, trade our son. Um, it was like, well, why don't you come over to the house and pick Leighton up? Well, and I'm like, oh, you, you, you're, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this. Her bar needed a new roof and some repairs and she let me pay for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's right. Right. I was so moved. I was like, here's another sign of just, dude, I'm talking about a crumble of hope. Sure. The smallest of hope that she would let me pay for something. So it wasn't just starting over. You were starting from a, a, a very negative deficit. It wasn't like, oh, hey, we're it just getting to know each over. other. It's, it's, yeah, it's. It was going way back. Like, I think we were at that point, maybe separated as long as we'd been married. Wow. I mean, damage was, oh, there was a lot. Sure. Because my wife is carries herself in so much integrity and she knows who she is and she knows she's a powerful woman. The bar was super high. Like there was no physical abuse. There was no, 
I mean, people sometimes were like, wow, did you beat on her? Did you, you know? And I was like, no, never. And they're like, wow. Like I had people in my corner being like, the crime doesn't fit the punishment. Like, so you rightfully kind of so had a drinking problem because of your past. There doesn't seem like there's compassion there. No. She has a, a high standard for herself. Mm. And I didn't meet that. Right. So she moved on. So anyway, I started looking at real estate pretty serious because my thought was, I will, I'm going to move on with my life. It's been three and a half years. Right. I, um, oh, I'm, I'm driving to, I got to back up. Sorry. That third summer of us being separated, I'm driving from North Dakota to meet in Idaho where her parents live to see, to meet them, to see Layton. Cause I'm, I've been gone a month. Right. She calls me. I'll never forget. I was driving through Eastern Montana. I get a phone call from her. She's about to fly to well, Idaho and I'm going to meet her that night. And she said, I want you to know that I got an attorney and I have divorce papers for you to sign wow. when you get here. And I pulled over on the side of the road and lost it. And I just felt so defeated. I, I felt like it was something that I felt was inevitable. And now the hope, Here it was. Sure. any hope I had was gone. So I had about a seven hour, eight hour drive to think about it. And I just remember how lost that felt like the, the, you know, when you're anticipating something and then, and then it happens and it, I just felt numb. Like I couldn't sure. believe, and especially, I mean, I'm three years sober. Right. Right. If she was going to do that, why didn't she do it three years ago? <laughs> I'm like three years sober. I'm like, getting my life together. I got out of debt because we lost everything, right? Like we'd lost our house, truck, like I bought it. I, I was just putting my life back together. So I get to Driggs where her parents lived and Leighton meets me in the front yard and we're on the ground, right? Embracing each other. And later she told me that she was looking out the window and she felt like God told her no. She said that he wouldn't release me from you as much as I hated you, <laughs> as much as I didn't feel anything for you. And at that moment, she's like, he's saying no. And later that day, she's like, we need to go talk. And I was just like the emotion of seeing my son after a month and feeling like I'm losing all this time. Every time I see him, each girl, like, I just was feeling like I was being robbed for, from so much and like, but also like I deserve it, you know, I was wrestling yeah. with that. Um, and so we go for a drive and she, and I just had given up at that point, like just, and she goes, I'm not going to sign the papers. I don't know what that, that means or looks like, but I'm, I'm taking that off the table. And I'm like, what, why? And she's like, I don't know. It doesn't mean anything's changing. I'm not getting back together with you. I'm just putting it on the table for now, which I appreciate. But at the time I just felt like it was kind of always hanging over my head, you know, like if I don't act just right. And that's not what she was saying. That's just how I felt. Um, Cause she didn't say I was tearing it up and let's get back together. Right. She was just like, let's see how this goes. Let's I'm not. So fast forward. I'm looking for real estate. She's like, well, let me see what you're looking at. So one time we were in Idaho and uh, she was here. I think she'd, the time she'd flown in and we're driving through our way to go see my dad. And we stop in this little town of Emmett that's on the way outside of Boise. And we get a real estate magazine. 
And I'm so clueless. I didn't think that much of it. We're just hanging out a little bit, but I'm like, I tell her, I think I'm going to move. Right. She's like, okay. I'm like, she's like, what does that look like? I'm like, well, I'll fly to Arizona, pick late enough. I have 15 days off and I'll fly. I'll drive up to Idaho. We'll hang out with my family. I want my son to be raised around the ranch and around my mom and sister. And, and then I'll drive home and drop them off and I'll fly back to work. Like, she's like, all right. So I think that fall, I find this place that we're at now. I, I, I put a, I talked to her and I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm buying this place. I put in a full price offer, like unseen. Wow. I knew there was something about this barn sure. that God now is like that highlighted to me. And now is what, where we do all of our wild courage stuff and our men's stuff. So, and, uh, I don't remember when, but somewhere in that process, she's like, well, what would it look like? You know, what, what if, what if we go with you? And I'm like, okay. So after years of her safely watching me, trans- my life be transformed, it was such a blur. Like the house I was living in sold, the, the ranch with the covered arena. So I moved into her house for the last two months before we moved and lived in the guest bedroom. Wow. That's when the real hope was starting to settle in. Right. Like there was no hand holding, there was no affection, there was no we're back together. Right. There was I've watched you from a distance. I'm feeling a little bit safer to allow you in a little bit. Right. That Christmas was very special because I woke up and got to celebrate Christmas with my son and my wife, even though I was living in the guest bedroom. And then March, yep. And then in March. Uh, we moved to Emmett and that was the first time my wife and I slept in the same bed in four or five years. Wow. I mostly was living on the couch towards the end. Sure. But before on my cot, right? Yeah. yeah. So that doesn't, that that's the beginning of our redemption story though. Yeah. Yeah. So time doesn't heal all wounds. That's a lie. We've been fed since we were little kids. Um, you can sweep them under the table, right. which is what a lot of people do. And it was what we did because we didn't know. Right. So we moved back in together and like, it was like our second chance. It was like we got remarried or something almost. And then it didn't take long for all of our past hurts to start showing up. Right. It didn't take long at all. She still didn't trust me with her heart and, and rightly so. And all the brokenness from my past abandonment from my mom, sure. All the way up through all, all, all my, um, undealt with pain. Still there. It it, it didn't go anywhere. It's still there. Right now, it just has a, a a ripe season for it to be all my triggers. Right, I'll, uh, being back together with my wife, thinking this is going to be perfect. I still don't feel affection. I just still don't feel loved. I still don't all the stuff that I brought from my childhood on up through all my relationships with other women show up. So how'd you start to deal with all of that? In well, I started a company at the time. God's, I mean, just the grace of looking back hindsight, right? I started a company, so I was gone all the time. So I'd be home for a little bit. And then I was gone for a month, starting a new company. So I was on the road, I'd come home, and we had enough dreams going on of our property and our place. You could kind of ignore and kind of push aside the the triggers, if you will. And then it'd show up and we'd have these huge knockdowns, drag outs, like... And we didn't have any answers because we had no tools right. at all. Right. Um, we tried more marriage counseling and it was a bust. It was like, you know, the person looking at the watch, like, okay, 
tell me how you, what do you feel? And I just felt shame. Sure. That's all I felt from counselors ever. Because what do they ask you when you first sit down? Tell me about your childhood. Oh, my dad was married five times. My mom, three, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Oh, wow. Mm. Mary, tell me about your child. Oh, my parents are still married. That's the starting point of shame of every counseling session I've ever been in. Wow. So I just felt like I got my butt whipped because right. it was always my fault. So how did, how did things start to shift for you if you weren't finding it in, in therapy? So God was doing a work in us spiritually. Um, I'd went on, I'd started this journey on my own of, cause I got saturated in an environment of emotional health. Okay. During uh, AA and some of those meetings you're talking about and, and the outpatient right. and AA, just getting tools on how to deal with life as it comes to me. Cause mm-hmm. we're so circumstantial, right? It's like, especially as an alcoholic, it's like, Oh, it's a beautiful day. The sun's shining. I want to have a drink. Oh, it's rainy. I'm sad. I'm going to have a drink. Right. <laughs> so I'm just such a circumstantial emotional being and my emotions are all over the place all the time. Like if, if, if somebody looks at me wrong or I, I just was so affected by emotionals because I was so codependent on everyone around me, sure. they needed to show up for me just right. Yeah. Or I was upside down emotionally. Right. Right? right. So if my wife didn't have enough sex with me, it meant she didn't love me. If she didn't make the sandwich for me or feed me, that means she didn't love me. Right. So if you go back to my story, remember I had the stepmom that would take hot breakfast to my stepkid, stepbrother and sister and tell me if you want something, you know where the cold cereal is. Wow. So if I'd go in at lunchtime, like I'm hungry, my wife's like, well, make a sandwich. I was devastated. Sure. I'm like, you don't love me. If you loved me, you would make me a sandwich. And she's like, I have two kids in diapers, <laughs> another one to take care of. You're gone all the time. I take care of this whole place and you want me to feed you a sandwich? Like, logically it didn't make sense to her like you're a grown man and i was just crushed by her right so spiritually i've been going on this journey getting a little bit healthier and this is the cool part of my story about 14 12 12 years ago one of my stepmoms reached out to me from when i was a little kid and found me on facebook wow And I didn't respond for a while because it was like a part of my painful past, you know, like my dad wasn't married for very long. Um, and I really liked her and it was just painful. I was like, I don't want to deal with any of that. Um, but we kind of had cultivated a relationship and she's like telling me about her life. And this is over a few years. Sure. Um, and she's telling me about her son that has a podcast. And so I started listening to it. His name's Justin. And it was the things he were talking about. I was like, I don't know that dudes talk like this <laughs> and about these things. And he was so vulnerable that I was a little bit scared of it, but I was also very attracted to his vulnerability. Um, and so I fast forward a year or so, I go to a business conference in California and unbeknownst to me, Guess who's speaking at that business conference? Justin, huh? Her son. <laughs> who's a health, uh, an, who, who's an emotional health coach. Wow. So I go up to him right before the conference starts and I'm like, hey, dude. He's like, hey. I'm like, do you like riddles? And he's like, what? I'm like, do you like riddles? And he's like, uh, okay. I'm like this big bearded guy standing over him. I, I, my part of the story, whether it's true or not, is, is I swear he was looking for like security, right? Because <laughs> he's about to go on stage at this and speak. And he's like, okay, I'll bite. I'm like, and I tell him, your mom was my mom before she was your mom. Because he's younger than me. Right. He wasn't born. And he's like, and then he's like, Jeremy? Because she had told him about it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dude. Like, and he, he just embraced me. He's like, you're the stepbrother I never had. And he's like, I got to get your number. How long are you in town? We got to go to dinner. And at dinner that night, we ended up 
having dinner turned into going back to his office for hours and him hearing my story. And I'd never, I never had somebody cry over my story before. I never felt seen in all my shame. He didn't, it's like he, he just swam through all my shame and saw you and had this compassion for me that I'd never felt before. If I never saw him again, that encounter was so impactful and healing to me to be seen and loved so unconditionally by a guy I just met. And that makes me think of, of Christ and how he encountered people. He didn't, he didn't see the, yeah, the woman at the, the well. Sure. The woman at the well. Yeah. You know, so that started a relationship that changed my marriage and my life forever in that he, I had a lot of, I'd never told my mom my story. My mom always wanted a relationship with me. I always kept her arms distance. And I told her, I forgive you, mom, for leaving me. Cause that was the biggest regret of her life, you know? Um, but I had all this resentment towards her because sure. all the things that happened on her watch sure. and a lot with her family. So I, I found out that you can't forgive people for things they do not know that they, mm-hmm. that have happened to, sure. to you because of them, which was a powerful lesson, but Justin coached me through how to have the scariest conversation I've ever had in my life to tell my mom, my story, wow. which was like five hours of me telling her everything because I was convinced if she knew my story, she'd kill herself. Yeah. Or reject convinced. you or, or whatever. Right. No, no, kill herself. That was wow. the only way out I saw. Right. Because of the nature of how it all went down, I felt like the shame alone, she will somehow kill That's herself. Right? right. So he helped me coach me through that by saying things like, you're not responsible for your parents' emotional well being. Right. Right. What? The codependency that I had was so deep with every relationship in my life. And I found out that I had, uh, I felt like a low level of hatred for women my whole life, rightfully so that I brought into my marriage. Fast forward, Justin and his wife, Abby do this course called living fully alive. That's like an 18 week course. Wow. That un- you get undone in. And then the last half of it, they put you back together. <laughs> but you, you ask yourself all the questions of basically, why do I do the things I do? Why do I react to the things I react? What are triggers? How do I cope with them? How do I deal with codependency? So my, I felt like meeting Justin, God said, because he is the redeemer and he can fast track things. Sure. I met Justin. A few months later, we're taking this course. And he's, he's seeing my wife and I and helping us navigate our marriage. So I'm meeting him one day a week. My wife's meeting the next week. And then we're getting together the third week. And we're emerged in this course all at the same time. And God just expedited the healing of our hearts and, and our pains that were caused before us once we were together and moving forward to that point. So much so that, dude, it was two years. We we did that for a year. Wow. And then we took the course again the next year. And really focused on our marriage. And the things he taught us. I mean, we, my wife and I, to be, I talk a lot about vulnerability, so I'll, I'll lead in that. My wife and I had such a huge fight three days ago um, that would have derailed our marriage for three or four months in the past. Right. Like in, in 10 minutes after the eruption, we were done. We were in each other's arms. Right. Because we have the tools to listen to one another to validate one another. We give each other 
permission to be honest to the point of hurting one another for the sake of advancing sure. our, our marriage. Because at the end of the day, we, this is how I feel we change the world. You go get healthy in yourself, get a healthy marriage, show your kids how to have a healthy marriage, model what a healthy marriage looks like to them so that they can go do the same. Right. And then their kids do the same. That's the biggest impact we're going to ever have on this planet. Which, which kind of takes me back to what you and I were talking about before we started recording, which is I see so many people that, that don't want to, don't want to look at their stuff don't want to deal with what's deep and what hurts. But, but what I hear you saying is that's the only way forward. That's the only way. Freedom is on the other side of fear. Mm -hmm. Having that conversation with my mom changed everything with my mom and I, it changed my marriage. There was a release of forgiveness to women, Sure, but I had to go back all the way to where it started. Because I had so much rejection and abandonment from my mom that I, I drug it into every relationship I've ever had. Sure. So I put a lot of junk on my wife that didn't belong there. So it was like I felt this low level of hatred for women like kind of went away after I had this beautiful scary conversation with my mom and, 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 and I've told this story in podcasts before, and it's amazing how many people have reached out to me. Um, and I've helped navigate hard conversations with their parents Cool, because Justin showed me how to do it yeah. and gave me the courage. And I had to borrow the, the other cool thing I want to mention is Justin, I, I borrowed his courage to have a lot of hard conversations. I didn't have it for myself. So I thought of how powerful he was and in his own story, how far he's come. And I'm like, I'm just going to borrow his courage and bravery for this conversation, which might sound weird. But since then, I've had people say, I had to borrow your courage to have this conversation with my wife and tell her about my story and my sexual abuse and my path. Like it's, it's really a gift that you can, give away and that you can borrow strength from someone else, which is what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. Sure. But it, it, we can't get there because we got to walk around being perfect all the time. <laughs> like yeah. we got it together, which goes back to your point of the fear of being seen. Sure. If they really knew me, right. That was my fear for so long. If, if you really knew what's in my heart, yeah, then I'm done. I'm dead. I'm totally not worth love or acceptance. And, and, and it's just such a lie that the enemy whispers in us. And we partner with that little lie and the trajectory. We get so far off course sure. over years. Like there was a lot of time in my life that I was like, if I don't sleep with enough women, I'd convince myself I was homosexual because of my childhood. Yeah. That's how twisted it can get of partnering with these lies, right? Like because of the, the nature of the sexual abuse I was experienced as a child, I'm like, well, I must, I must be homosexual if I did these things. So the antidote to it was sleep with as many women as possible. Right. That'll fix it, which is obviously the opposite of the truth. But facing those fears is freaking scary. That's why people don't do it. Right. Right. And so I'm the antidote to shame is vulnerability. Right. Well, that's what I was, yeah, I was going to bring that up is <clears throat> what I'm hearing you saying is not only do you have to see your stuff, you've got to be able to, to speak it to, you know, there's uh, trying to remember the exact reference. I think it's uh, James five sixteen. It says, confess your faults to your, brothers to to others so that you can be healed yeah powerful exchange happens and I, i'm at a place now where i've received so much healing that i'm very 
open with my story. It's become transparency at this point. There's a difference between transparency and vulnerability that a lot of people in these circles get enough healing that they'll be vulnerable with their story. And then 10 years later, they're telling their same story, which is great. But everyone, they get accolades for being vulnerable. It's not vulnerable anymore. You're just being transparent. Like I can tell parts of my story that were so painful and gripping me with fear that I thought I would die if I ever, anybody ever found out. Right. I can walk through that pretty easy now because I received so much healing. It's called transparency. Now, me being vulnerable is telling you how I crushed my son's heart two days ago. Right. That cost me something. Yeah. That's what we found with Wild Courage around the fire is brothers who get low with humility and risk vulnerability to be seen. And what they're finding in this circle is that there's unconditional love and acceptance on the other side of, I feel like an a-hole because most of it has to do with being a husband and a father sure. and how we feel like we've blown it. And they're met with, oh, bro, me too. So the first step is I see men being vulnerable and taking a risk. And then other guys were like, me too. Same. Yeah. And immediately you don't feel alone. And there's something about not feeling alone in our brokenness that's very empowering and, and hopeful. Yeah. And then yeah. to be loved unconditionally, right? I, I felt like God told me th- about three months ago, he said, I want you to love men unconditionally so that they can accept unconditional love for me. Right. So when I meet with guys, oftentimes the first thing I tell them is I don't need anything from you. I don't, I don't need you to stay sober because that so many times, especially with dealing with addiction is, is we make it about ourselves. The first guy I walked with for a year in sobriety didn't make it. Dude, I was more devastated than he was. Right. Why am I not a good coach? Why am I not any good? Right. So I've just learned over the years of walking with men and it's been very powerful is I don't need you to stay sober. And they're like, whoa, what? I'm not your dad. I I get to love you unconditionally. I want to be the first person you call if you go get hammered tomorrow night because I don't care. I care. I don't want you to drive. I don't want you to hurt yourself, but it doesn't change. isn't attached, right? No. So there's this exchange of unconditional love because, because so many men, again, look at God through the same lens they look at their father, sure. yep. which is I'm not enough. I don't add up. I've Never blown it. Sure. Yep. And so if we can get healthy and whole enough in, inside of ourselves that I don't need you to be okay for me to be okay, which is the definition of codependency, right? right? Then we can enter into a place of real intimate relationship with other brothers because your performance has nothing to do with my affection or love towards you. Right. Where is it? Where else does that happen? It doesn't happen in our marriages. It doesn't happen. It certainly doesn't happen in the church. Right. Right. Not my church. Not, not, I've never seen it in my, I don't think that's the model of any church. So what if, we go get whole enough that guys can really be honest and vulnerable and not feel judged. Well, right. I can tell you because I'm experiencing it and I'm seeing it. Yeah. And the fruit of it is I get emails from men's wives. You know, yeah. that's the fruit of, of all of it is that's the real transformation that's happening. Just by the power of vulnerability and guys being seen and heard and not feeling judged. And they can go show up for their wives and their kids in a different way because they're being validated by other men. Yeah. And it is something that has to be, has to be taught. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it can't be, it has to be modeled, it has to be shown, it has to be, um, I don't know, just you have to experience it. And I, and when I try to, you know, explain it, you know, or, or help people see it. It's like you, 
it can't be learned in a class. You have to go into it. Yeah. You have to face it. And that's the reward system. Like we were talking about either like God set up his kingdom and there's just principles that, that are, are the way they are. Right. And there's gotta be a buy-in. You gotta have skin in the game. (laughs) True. Yep. And that's gotta cost you something. And And the cost is why the stakes are high is because the things that matter to us most are the relational ones. Right. Work is work, right? But the things that grieve us are relationships because that's the kingdom. That's the thing that, that, that matters. Yeah. Got to be rich. And it's scary. Sure. And it's scary. Which... But my, my hope is that we, if anything comes out of, out of this conversation, Matt, is that men will take risks with, with somebody they trust. It can be one dude. Right. Hey man, I'm going through this that they feel safe sharing with and see what happens. Change your life. That would, that would be beautiful. Just taking a risk enough to, to be heard, to be known, to, to realize that underneath all that junk, you're far more beautiful. And you know, then, then you can see the God's beauty, beauty for ashes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeremy, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time again. It's uh, it's my honor. It's, it's always an honor to be healing with you, for me. Thank you. It's always well, a healing on. experience to just just talk, hear your story, and and realize just even if our stories are different, just how much we're brothers. So thank you again. Yeah. Um. Thank you. I love what you're doing, man. I'm proud of you. Um. You're making a difference in men's hearts. This is this is how you change the world. This is how we do it through family. Yeah. Men get healthy and whole. Their marriage gets healing and whole, and they model to their kids how to go do it. So the generational brokenness stops with us. Right, right. But proud of you, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Love you. Take care. Love you. Thanks again for listening to the One Heart Podcast. Go ahead and subscribe and check us out online at oneheartonelight.org.